1 Corinthians 13. And the title is A More Excellent Way, Part 2. Let's read verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these verses together, I pray that you would give us all a sense of who you are, that you'd give us all a, a fresh vision of you, the God who loves us, and help us to understand that love and what it means as a church to love one another that way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I was going to ask you just based on these verses what the main context of these verses is, you might say it's love. Um, what you might not know is that it's actually not that. The, the main context is spiritual gifts. We've been discussing that for many weeks now. Um, this, this part of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to questions they asked him. So they sent him a letter with questions, and he's responded to each one, starting with, now concerning whatever they asked about. And this began back in chapter 12, verse 1. He said, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then we see in this chapter, he also mentions some spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecy, faith. And then in chapter 14, he continues talking about spiritual gifts and prophecy and tongues and church order. And so this chapter is right in the middle of that. And it is all about love, but we want to understand that in the bigger context of what Paul is writing about because there's a reason why he's talking about love right here. And if we're not careful, it might seem like Paul's just going on a tangent. Paul lost track of what he was saying. He's just going to go on for a while about love, and then he'll get back to prophecy in a second. He's on a tangent right now. But I think it's not what's happening. I think what's happening is Paul has been leading up to this point for a long time. I think this chapter is actually a culmination of what Paul has perhaps been leading towards as we've gone through this letter, as Paul has, has looked at the church, as he's received reports from the church, as he's read their letter, as he's considered the different things they're struggling with, they kind of all are leading up to this. And it's almost as if Paul at this point says, I've diagnosed the root problem, and it's this. I mean, just think about some of the things we've learned about Corinth up to this point. In chapter 1, he opens up with, you're all divided. You've all got your different leaders, and you're all arguing over which one's better. One guy's smarter, one guy can't talk well, and you're dividing over that. And he's saying, please, for the love of God, have unity, and don't divide like that. Chapter 5, we found out that in the church, there was a serious sin that was going unaddressed. And Paul says, the most loving thing you could do is address it because if you don't, it's hurting those involved and it's hurting the whole church. And you're not loving each other by not addressing it. 
In chapter 6, we find out that the church of Corinth, they were going to law against one another. There were, there was lawsuits going on in the church, and he's like, if you all can't resolve your matters amongst yourselves, what are you saying about the God you serve if you believe in a God who sent his son and sacrificed for you? If you have two believers and you can't resolve things amongst yourselves, and you've got to go to the Roman government to resolve your moral issues, what is that saying about your belief system? And then in verse, chapters 8 through 10, they were bickering over, is it okay or not to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And Paul's like, of course, there's not, those false idols aren't real, so that meat's not really defiled, so of course you could eat it. But the bigger issue is, is this really stumbling your brother? And if it is, are you willing to give it up for them to not stumble them? So the bigger question is, out of love, what are you willing to give up? Not what am I allowed to do and don't you judge me, it's my life. It's No, if I love you the way God loved me, what am I willing to give up? And so all these different things, even the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, he's like, when you guys are coming together because of your factions and your divisions, when you're coming together, like one guy's eating in that corner, one guy's drinking all the wine in that corner, one guy's full, one person's drunk, someone's starving, like this is not the way it's supposed to be. So as we've gone through this letter, it seems pretty clear that Paul is leading up to this point and he's saying, I think I found a problem. And so we come now to this topic of spiritual gifts. We've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, and even with that, yes, he lists some spiritual gifts, but the main emphasis of chapter 12 was unity, right? So it seems like you get the sense that what Paul was addressing was they were, they were despising certain gifts and they were admiring other gifts and they were competing with one another about whose gifts were better. And they were kind of like trying to stack up, like figure out what hierarchy exists and who's better because of what gift. And Paul was basically saying, you're all the body of Christ. And just like you need your arm and your foot and your leg and your head, you need it all. We're all different. We've all got different gifts. We have to respect that and understand that and not be jealous, not be arrogant, not be boastful. And so even with the spiritual gifts, in this church, like I've said before, they had, like, they're what you would have called a mature church in terms of spiritual gifts from the outside looking in. In chapter 1, Paul said about them that they weren't lacking in any gift. In chapter 14, it says they were zealous for gifts. It also says in chapter 14 that in their worship service, they were actually using these gifts. One person was singing a song, one person was teaching, one person had a revelation, one person had a tongue. They were using these gifts, and they're what you would think is a mature church spiritually, but there's a problem. And so, as we're going through this book, it seems to me like this chapter, this love chapter, is not a tangent. It's not like a, a parenthetical thing. It's actually what he's been leading towards. And so... It seems like these different issues that Corinth faced were leading to this one main problem. And it's as, it's as if Paul is saying, if you could just fix this one thing, then all these other issues would go away on their own. If you can't love like this, then nothing else matters. It's kind of how he starts out this chapter. We saw that last week, right? If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, and if I have all this faith, and if I can prophesy, and I've got all this knowledge, and if I give everything I have to the poor, and if I give my own body to be burnt, if I do all this stuff, but I don't have love, it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, none of those things matter if they're not done out of love. That's a pretty powerful word to let sink in for a second. It doesn't matter what we give, what we do, what we say, how much we serve. 
if it's not out of love. God wants us to hear this and to, know, to understand it's worthless without love. It doesn't come from a place of love. It's worthless. It's valueless in the kingdom. And so Paul begins to describe this kind of love. And we're going to go more in depth with these different attributes next week. We'll just read through them again. He calls it patient, kind, not jealous, doesn't brag, isn't arrogant, doesn't act unbecomely, doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. And you're probably familiar with this passage. I think most people are. Um, Probably in a different context, though. You often hear this read at weddings, for example. Um, I think it's important to mention here that Paul's not describing marital love in this chapter. Yes, this love should exist in a marriage, but this love is not enough for a marriage. For one thing, this doesn't address romantic love at all, which I think we'd all agree is necessary for a healthy marriage. It also doesn't talk about what men and women need emotionally, spiritually, sexually. It doesn't go into any of those things here. The different roles a man and woman play in a marriage doesn't go into any of that. So a marriage couldn't survive on just this. This is the kind of love that we all should have for one another. Every believer for every other believer. This is the kind of love we all should share. So, yes, it should be in a marriage as well, but there are other things a marriage needs. So, I mention that because when you read this, in, in the past when I've read this, I'm tempted to just read it in terms of how, how I view my relationship with my wife or the person I'm dating or whatever. It's like, you know, you kind of think that way. Whereas when we read this, we should be thinking about it in terms of, do I love my fellow Christians this way? Do I love others in my church this way? Am I in a church that loves this way? So, and in that sense, this chapter can become a sort of measuring stick for us, which I think is is helpful in many different ways. No matter what problems we face in church, whatever issues we encounter, whatever directions we feel that God leading us in, whatever things we're considering, whatever disagreements are in the church, whatever divisions are happening, this chapter can become a measuring stick for that. Whatever we feel about our, our calling or our purpose or our lack thereof, whatever questions we have, we can start here. Am I loving others this way? Because if you don't know what else God has called you to, start here. This is what he wants us to do is love others this way. So it's as if Paul says, let's get first things first. Let's focus on the root of the problem and go from there. You've got divisions in 1 Corinthians 1. You've got sins in the church that need to be dealt with. You're going to law against one another. You're not sharing correctly during communion. You're stumbling your brother and sister with how you act and behave. You're esteeming some and despising others. Hold on a second. I found the root cause. I've diagnosed you. And sure, we can discuss all these different issues and, and technically and practically how to resolve all those, but the core issue is you're not loving each other like you should. You're not, you're not loving each other like, like God loved you. You're not loving each other with a sacrificial love that he describes. And not to remind us of the greatest commandment. When someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, make sure you tithe. 
Oh, that wasn't it? No. Luke 10, 27, they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in Matthew 22 about this, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So that's Luke 10, 27, and also in Matthew 22, those kind of, both passages kind of mention the same thing. So why is the second one like the first? Why is loving others like yourself, why is that similar to the first one? Loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's because when you love someone, you care about what they care about. Right? I care about Lindsay's friends, not because I have a personal one-on-one with her friends, but because I love Lindsay. And if her friend suffers, it affects me because of my love for Lindsay. In the same way, God loves people, right? God so loved the world. So if we love God, we're going to love what he loves. We're going to care about what he cares about. That's why the second is like the first. If you do the first, you'll do the second. So you don't need to think directly on just love others. If you don't love others right, first ask yourself, how is my love for God doing? Because the second one, failing at the second one is a sign that you're failing at the first one. So there's this order, like get it, get it in the right order. So if you notice you're not loving someone correctly, it's not really helpful to be like, yep, I'm loving them, I better just put a smile on and fake it. You've got to get that love from somewhere, right? And that comes from God. And so you've got to go back to him, get that squared away, get your love with God right, and then you'll find that you can love others more. So the second is like the first. But also he says, all the law and prophets hang on these two. Why is that? He's saying you could fulfill the entire Old Testament, you can fulfill all the law if you just obey these two things. It's because when you love God correctly and you love others correctly, you won't break any commandments. You won't have any idols. You're not going to be jealous. You're not going to steal. You're not going to kill. You're not going to do those things. So it should remind us of that kind of love that that Jesus is talking about. Um, And this is a tangent. I'm not going to really go there, but I'm going to Hint at it in case you want homework. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Think of that while you're reading Romans 1. Because in Romans 1, we see the opposite. What you see in Romans 1 when you reject God is your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. They all begin to get degraded. Your mind is darkened. You have these unhealthy passions, you begin acting out in ways that are ungodly. That, that progressive degradation is what happens when you don't love God that way. And Romans 1 ends with the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, and you approve of those who do likewise. So the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself is approving of those that are sinning just like you sin. And the opposite of loving God, your heart, soul, mind, and strength is your heart, soul, mind get darkened and you begin to act out in sinful ways. It's a great kind of meditation thing. I don't want to spend too much time there, but that's homework if you want to, if you want to do it. I originally planned to read through all that stuff and to get all technical and I want to save some time today. So that can be homework. It's a great study. Anyway, according to this chapter, what Paul is saying, it doesn't matter what gift you have. It doesn't matter how much faith you have, how much works you have, if you don't have love. If you don't love others with the sacrificial kind of love that Paul mentions here, nothing else matters. 
It doesn't matter what you do, how well you preach, how well you sing. It doesn't matter how much you serve others, how much you go to church. It doesn't matter what others think of you. It doesn't matter how much you try to be an example and share the gospel with your family. If you don't love like this, those things don't matter. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing to think about. I mean, even in terms of church, I think in church we get so caught up in the idea of doing. And there's this kind of modern phrase being the missional church, which is kind of making its way through the churches now. And it's a good idea, the idea of, look, we're on a mission. We have a great commission. God wants us to share the gospel. That's great. Paul would say, yes, by all means, be missional. By all means, share your faith. No problem. But if you don't have love, none of that matters. And So if you're in a church that's just doing for the sake of doing, we've got to be doing. We've got to be active. We've got to be, we've got to be able to report back that we did something this week. We've got to be doing something. But it's not out of love. It's more out of this kind of legalistic sense of, I have to do this. God doesn't care. That's what he's saying. God doesn't care if you share the gospel and you don't love that person. That's not pleasing to him. And I think this also comes at a very good time for us in our church because as we've been going through 1 Corinthians and we're talking about what it looks like to be a church that believes in an active God that wants to participate with us in worship and wants to interact with us and we're looking forward to next year, and we're talking about what things can we incorporate into our worship that would give it more of a participatory sense where we can all kind of be involved. We could have a time of sharing and a time of listening. And as we're looking towards those things, I think this topic, being smack dab in the middle of that topic, is really important. Because we ought to keep this in mind as we pray about it and as we seek these things, because I don't want us to misunderstand the goal of where we're headed. I've talked a lot about spiritual gifts and a lot about experience in worship, but I want us to understand that the goal of this kind of worship that we're, that we're headed towards is not an experience for ourselves. It's not for our own benefit. Whenever Paul talks about spiritual gifts, he's talking about it in terms of how that could bless somebody else. He's talking about it in terms of in the church, using these gifts to build up one another in their faith to encourage one another. And so a lot of the concerns that I've had that I've shared with you about opening up to a kind of worship that allows for some kind of participation and sharing, I get concerned with the extremes. I get concerned with the churches that I feel like are just chasing after a sensational kind of worship that in my view goes beyond what God intended, goes beyond what Christ intended goes beyond what the Holy Spirit is doing and becomes some sort of trance-like, meditative, Eastern kind of thing more than... So my concerns there would actually be resolved if we got this right. You know, my concerns about... So I've been in worship services, for example, where somebody just gets up and starts sharing and they share for a half hour and no one feels like they can stop that person. And you're not even sure if what they're saying is right, and they're not like the pastor. There's kind of like, it's just kind of happening, it's kind of chaotic. If that person had a word from God, but they loved everybody else, they would approach that differently. They would say, I think God's given me a word, might I share it real quick? And um, this is what I'm thinking, I want you all to pray about this. And they wouldn't take up an hour of time doing it. So love would resolve that. And I've also talked about, you know, what happens, how do you create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable sharing something that's on their heart, even if what they end up sharing 
if I feel like it's actually not biblical and we have to have a conversation about that, that they're not feeling judged for that? How do you have an environment that allows for participation and also allows for correction where everyone still feels love and not rejection? I don't know how to balance that, but I think, again, if we all loved each other this way, that would resolve that problem. So if the idea of church becomes, I can't wait to go to church to get that experience, get that boost that I need for the week, we're not living out the kind of love Paul's describing here. A love that puts others first. We should be going to church, yes, of course, to meet with God. Of course, to get encouraged, to, to learn, to grow. But also to ask the question, how can I help somebody else today? What can I do with the spiritual gifts God's given me to minister to somebody else today? How can I be part of what's making the church stronger today? Not just for my own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Like Paul said in the last chapter, for the common good. Not just for my good, for the common good. So if we get this right, if we focus in on this love chapter, and we understand the context in which Paul is saying it, and we really get this right, putting first things first, and then we come together to serve one another, I think that's going to become a pretty strong church. And then when we open up ourselves to allow the Holy Spirit to move among us, because of our love for God and our love for one another, I think it could be a great thing. And so let's keep this in mind as we continue, finish out this year with the way we're doing things now, and as we continue to go through this book, First Corinthians, these couple of chapters, and as we head into next year, let's ask God to show us what kind of church He wants us to be. Let's ask God to show us what kind of worship He wants us to have on Sundays. But let's also ask God, how can we love one another the way that He loves us? When others come to our church and visit our church, do they see us as a church that loves one another? Or do they see the typical divisive church, the click church, you know, the church where after the preaching is done, everyone's gone in five minutes and no one talks to each other? Is that the kind of church we want to be? Or the kind of church where... We love one another. We share with one another. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We give to those who are hurting. We give of ourselves when we can. We're a church that's a family. When others come and visit, is that what they see? Like John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is the criteria if the world's looking at you, they're going to know you're his disciple if we love one another. Not if we wear nice clothes, if we go to church every Sunday, if we make sure to put our money in the bucket, all that stuff. That's all, doesn't, it doesn't matter. If we love one another, that's what matters. If we love God, we love each other, that's what should, we should be characterized by first, more than anything else. It's a church that loves one another. 